Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Would we receive your word this morning in faith and spirit? Would you help us to do that? Illuminate your word to us. Help us to understand it. And bring us, Father, into the presence of the living Lord Jesus, crucified and resurrected for us and for our salvation. Father, do a good work now through this ancient practice of the reading and preaching of your scriptures. Would we hear, Father, with faith, obedience, love, hope, and joy. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite days occurs pretty much like clockwork every two years because Emily and I and our kids get to hang out with dear long-term friends of yours Matt and Tara McGill and their kids a little bit of backstory about this friendship a couple of you might actually know Matt and Tara and or you've heard me talk about them before but it's kind of like this Emily and I were friends with Matt and Tara back in college they were a couple years younger than we were but not only did we go to college together they followed us to Philadelphia. There were other reasons besides just Jim and Emily, but I started going to Westminster Seminary in Philly, Emily started going to Penn, and they got married, came down, Matt went to Temple Medical School, and Tara went to Westminster Seminary as well. Really good friends of ours, and went to the same church, both in college and in West Philly, and then also the McGills lived above us, so we had one of those Victorian twins, in University City. They lived on our third floor. Fun fact about the Anger household, Tara is the third person in the history of the world to have met my son Micah. Micah is running actually the Philadelphia Marathon this morning, just like his old man did not. And Micah was born by emergency home birth back in the day in West Philly. Tara heard all the commotion going on on our second floor she came down and asked, what's going on here? And I said, oh, nothing. But that's how it went. And so really, really close bond. So good friends of ours, but then also they're heroes of ours as well. They have been long-term missionaries to Africa. Matt primarily as a medical missionary. He directs a hospital 
in a very poor country and also is very involved with church planting in the region. Tara also, likewise, homeschools their kids and then does regional coordination for the missionary or organization that, that, that they're a part of. Both brilliant. Matt actually came to college Doogie Hauser style at 15 years old. Yeah, could, it could have been anything he wanted to do in the world, but there they are being missionaries in Africa for going on two decades now. Really love them, really respect them, and about every two years they take a break. They're on furlough for the summer, and we get to spend the better part of a day with them, and it's wonderful when we get together. We talk, we laugh, we reminisce, we tell stories, we laugh, we cry, we pray. We do all of these things together, and we have a really, really good time doing it. And Matt and Tara and Emily and me were part of a larger group of friends in the little Christian fellowship that we were a part of that were really, really close in college. One other anger connection, Matt and Rebecca Harmon, Matt's the lead pastor at Liberty Mainline, was also at college, and is going to be with us doing that kind of same, same drill. And that group of friends, some of them had grown up in Christian homes and had been following Jesus relatively for a long time. Others were new to all that stuff, like, like me. But we agreed, Jesus is the best news in the world, and we applied ourselves to living faithfully for Jesus on a college campus, trying to figure out what that looked like. But in addition to that, it wasn't only about that season of our lives. We were looking ahead, and we were thinking, praying, dreaming about what, by God's grace, we would do for the kingdom of God in the decades to come. A handful of us became vocational ministers, most of us doctors, illustrators, teachers, lawyers, a little bit of everything. What can we do for Jesus in the long term? But the past couple of times in these once a, every two years get-togethers with Matt and Tara, they've gotten a little sad in parts for this reason it's from Matt and Tara that Emily and I hear of friends of ours that are no longer following Jesus. Sort of ironic that of that friend circle, it's the ones in Africa that hear about <laughs> other people here in the States. But, but the deal there is when Matt and Tara first went overseas, sent out a lot of support letters, emails, networking, fundraising, looking for prayer. And everybody in the college fellowship group got those emails and, and phone calls and all that sort of thing. And over the years, Matt and Tara, often, when they come back to the States, they email, call everybody, say, hey, we're coming back if you want to get together. And bit by bit, hear more and more from the people stateside, hey, we would love to see you, but we just want you to know that we're, we're not really plugged in to a church at this point and or we've, we've stopped following Jesus. And in some cases, when Matt and Tara hear that, it represents a dramatic, sudden shift. Other times, a long decline. Sometimes they're angry. Most of the time, it's simple apathy that's set in over a period of time. And I'm, I'm sad to hear that. It hits me because I think of these friends and... You know, college is a really intense time for people and a lot of different reasons, 18 to 22, give or take, unless you're mad. 
and I think about these specific people that have stepped away, we spent a ton of time praying together. We spent a ton of time contending for the faith together. And from my perspective, what to this day I recognize as the Holy Spirit doing some pretty amazing things in our midst, from where they sit, was that just something they ate at the food court? Is that all it was? And from one perspective, I get it. <coughs> College, for me and Emily, was 20, 25 years ago now. And as years go by, people change. People evolve. I'm not the same person I was 20, 25 years ago. Still following Jesus, but other parts of me are different. Everybody's different. But from the pr perspective of the scriptures, what these other friends have been doing, the Bible calls it apostasy, a decisive turning away from Jesus with consequences. So what happened? And we've been talking about this in a couple different ways in this Colossians sermon series. And I, hopefully I'm not sounding mean or bitter or judgmental towards these friends, but just using them as an example and speaking neutrally, uh, they fell out of love with Jesus. But flip it around, one of the songs that I heard at the church that I went to in college, we, we don't sing it here. Uh, full disclosure, I, I don't really like the song. I like the sentiment, but it's too sentimental of, of a song to me. I love to tell the story. Do any of you that have been in churches for a long time know that? It goes, I love to tell the story. T'will be my theme and glory. I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. I'm more of a city mouse than a country mouse. That song's a little too country for me. But I love the sentiment. I love to tell. I love to hear. I love to share. I love to exult in the story of Jesus, crucified and resurrected. Similarly, a song that I do really like that we sung here this morning, uh, Blessed Assurance. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior, Jesus, all the day long, all the time. And for any set of reasons, for these specific friends, that, that over time became less true. But what I'm doing today is I am preaching to you today for tomorrow that you would believe in, trust, love Jesus for the long term. We've been talking in Colossians about how Jesus is everything. If Jesus truly is everything, he's also forever. And this is the Christ by whom we need to be framed and formed deeply. So two parts from here, loving Jesus for the long term. First, why we should, and then also... A warning. So why we should, and then a warning in these two parts. So the Apostle Paul, here in his letter to the Colossian church, is a master of rhetoric. He always is, but in Colossians in particular, I appreciate the, the rhetoric. You may not have realized this, going through Colossians here on Sunday morning. Paul is in the midst of a slow play, bit by bit by bit. We're already in Colossians chapter 2. Paul is only now finishing the introduction to the letter. And I'm not going to criticize Paul for that. Hey, Pastor Jim's sermons have really short introductions. Said nobody ever. So 
game recognizes game. And we, I, as, as twit aficionados of long intros, totally into that. But I mentioned at the intro to the sermon series, the main thrust of the letter to the Colossians is that there were a lot of people in the Colossian church that were falling away from the faith due to what scholars have called either the Colossian heresy or the Colossian error. Interestingly, however, Paul hasn't addressed that Colossian heresy or error at all, although he's building up to it bit by bit by bit. Right now he's building some last-minute credibility, Colossians 2.1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Classic rhetoric, Aristotle and others would talk about logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos, the logic of it. Pathos, the emotion of it. Ethos, the credibility, the shared trust between orator and audience, the connection, the solidarity. Ethos is what Paul is doing here. Hey, keep in mind, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those neighboring towns 15 miles away, Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Hey, I have skin. Josh was talking about this last week as well. I have skin in your game. Also, ethos at the end of our passage, verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am still with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ, building up the ethos, and building up the core strength and flexibility to mix metaphors in verse 2. That your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I want to build up that core strength and flexibility so that you would have a bulwark against a buffer for what? And in verse 4 of our little passage here, Paul, for the first time, tips his hand about the thing that he's been driving towards this whole time, and it's going to take up the majority of the rest of the letter. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Other translations here will have, don't want you to be deluded with fine-sounding arguments. Because the reality was that the Colossians were in danger of falling away from the faith. And that danger is still a clear and present one for us. Well, what would keep us in the faith? For those of you that identify as Christians, why should we stay? Sunday school answer, you're not going to be shocked to hear Jesus. And scholars say that in verse 3, we have nerd words here, one of the high points of New Testament Christology. One of the key crucial statements about Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament scriptures, it's encapsulated here, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Love those concepts, wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom skews practical. We're actually going to talk a lot more about this next week. Wisdom is the practical wisdom knowledge that you have to be able to navigate your day-to-day. And the knowledge is the deep stuff. Going to be talking about this too next week, actually. One of the things that captured me years and years ago about the gospel of Jesus and does to this day is that Jesus and the faith that he gives to us 
is as deep as you could ever want it and as practical as you can handle. It is both. And in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus, as we've been talking about, is everything. Here in a couple of different ways, Jesus is singular, and then also Jesus is robust. He's both. N.T. Wright, an Episcopal scholar and bishop in England, has said this about this passage. Everything we might want to ask about God and his purposes can and must now be answered with reference to the crucified and risen Jesus, the Messiah. Christian, what can you tell me about God? Where do you start? You start with Jesus, because Jesus is everything. And for years and years, old-timers at Liberty Collingswood, you've heard me reference in this connection T.S. Eliot's love song of J. Alfred Prufrock before. When I first became a Christian, when I was thinking about the singularity of Jesus, how all of God's will and revelation, and redemption, and salvation, everything else is Jesus to us, I thought of the love song of old J. Alfred, who in the poem, sitting, he's, he's on a first date, sitting across from somebody that he's interested in, and he thinks about, how do I convey myself to her? And he says this, and would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question? And it's the end of that quote right there. Prufrock is wondering, is there a way, and would it be worth it for me to condense all of myself into this ball, everything that I am, my past, my present, my hopes for the future, roll it and convey it to this person across the table. Prufrock is wondering, is that even possible? Is it worth it? But in the Council of Salvation of our triune God, it is possible and it is worth it. Because for every word of God, including the word of God, Jesus Christ, it does not return to the Father void, but accomplishes the purposes for which it has been sent. And God condenses all of himself in his will. He rolls him forward to us. He says, this is Jesus. Learn of me here and in him. So Jesus is singular. But then he's also robust. Intriguingly to me, Paul says that in verse 3, for the high point of Christology in the New Testament that Colossians 2.3 is, he doesn't unpack it. Okay, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How? Why? I don't know exactly what Paul had in mind here, but from other writings of Paul, I think Paul would at least agree if I would unpack these three aspects of Jesus. Jesus is enough. Jesus is grace. Jesus is hope. Jesus is enough, he's grace, he's hope. Jesus is enough. Jesus is, can be, and should be your baseline for making sense of a complex, sad world. Let Jesus be your primary category, your primary sufficiency in all of the mix-up world and stuff that we live in. Try Jesus 
and see if it's not the case that specifically in him, for all of your successes and all of your failures, for all of your hopes and for all of your fears, for all of your confusion and for all of your conflicts, Jesus captures all of it and gives you a place to put all of these different things and to try to wrestle through and make sense. In current parlance, late, late modern West, we, we have all of these different selves. And I talk about this sometimes. We, we have our work self and our play self, our family self and our friend self. We have my mental self and my sexual self and my physical self and my expressive self and my aspirational self and my online self. And it just goes on and on and on. Those selves, I'll get back to this in a second, don't necessarily talk to each other that well. But I think if Paul were speaking today, he'd say, let Jesus' self be your self-baseline. And you can put all, any and all of these different selves here, and you'll find that Jesus truly is enough. And Jesus is also grace. What do you do when you mess up? What do you do when you sin? Omari was introducing very well our confession of sin earlier this morning. Because sometimes, and more often than we want to admit, the problem's not out there, the problem's in here. And Jesus died on the cross and rose again, paying the penalty for our sin. Or what hope do we have for sins between people? Or sins between people groups? Or a broken world? If not Jesus, so Jesus is grace. And then Jesus also is hope for all the messiness of a world on fire. If you're worried about what's going on in the world and anxious, I don't blame you. Things are crazy, 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 crazy. So whether you're concerned about Israel and Gaza, Ukraine and Russia, climate, politics, whatever it is, Jesus gives hope for a new heavens and new earth beyond just more mess and more mess and more mess. And I said I'd return to the different selves. One of the primary selves in this cultural moment is expressive self. Notice at the same time that expressive self has nothing of help to your global concern self. The one can't help the other, but the Jesus self And so if you're still putting pieces together spiritually, if you're not sure where you are with things with Jesus, thank you so much for being here in the room with us or worshiping online. I would simply want to ask, where are you getting these things? Where are you getting them? Where might you look for the enough, for the grace, and for the hope? The more clearly we ask that question, I think the more obviously it becomes, as human beings, there aren't a lot of options. For all of the multiplicity of our polyform world, there is not an unlimited number of good ideas about where we can go ultimately for hope, for grace, for sense, for self, but Jesus. Going back to the McGills, one time when we were living in Texas and the McGills on one of their Summer, every two years, we're spending time with us. I was in the backyard with Matt. We were playing soccer with our kids, and our kids were younger than, which was great, so we were destroying them. It was awesome. It was like a million to nothing. 
McGill in college tore his ACL, and I thought, no big deal. Only when I tore my ACL when I was around 30, I was like, oh, this is, this is a thing. I, I was in recovery mode from, from surgery, off crutches, and McGill was like, Jim, you're favoring your, the ACL knee. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And he said, you really are. You're, you're running in like little kid circles right, right now because, <laughs> because only one knee is fully functional right now. I was like, shut up. And he said, you know, I am a doctor and I hear from you that your knee is surgically repaired. You've got to start putting weight on it or it's never going to flourish and thrive again. And he was right. Didn't tell him that's exactly what my... PT was, t was, was also sharing with me. I just had a lot of negative voices in my life at, at, at that point. But, but they were right. Put weight on it. And whether you're a committed follower of Jesus or still piecing things together and not sure where you are, not only lean into Jesus, but lean on him. Put weight on him for the enough, for the grace, for the hope. So that's why we should love Jesus for the long term. And then also the, the warning, which comes to us again in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This is the buffer against falling away, against apost apost apostasy. I was going to say against apostrophe. Against apostasy. And I understand that, that with, with contemporary ears, when you even get a whiff, of combining religion with warning, it sounds really, really nerve-wracking and harsh. But there's also the, is it true question? And at Liberty Collingswood, we wanna be a church that's honest about what we see the Bible saying. And for my own part, if you remove the warnings from the scriptural story, you don't have the scriptural story anymore. There are so many warnings there. It's, it's actually, it's, I would say it's not the primary. The love of Jesus is primary, but it is a consistent theme. And so we need to be honest about that. But don't freak out. Instead, learn and lean into Jesus and build up that core strength and, and flexibility that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. I mentioned earlier that those fine-sounding arguments, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Here's the thing about fine-sounding arguments. They sound fine. Every once in a while, I'll meet a Christian who says, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of sources outside the church, and I was surprised that they make a lot of sense and they sound good. And from my perspective, I'll say, of course they do. They're fine-sounding arguments. Paul's saying, he, Paul is not giving the warning, hey, if you go outside the church, everything that you ever hear is going to sound so totally off the wall that you're not going to be attracted to it for a second. He's going to say they're, they're fine-sounding. And fine-sounding arguments, of course, they arise from a place where media, culture, news, entertainment, there is a unified set of voices, and so arguments coming from that, lines of reasoning, again, speaking neutrally, I hope, they're, they're going to make sense. But in Jesus, we enculturate into him and disenculturate from things around us discerningly, 
We could spend a lot of time talking about that. But this is the bottom line. I get concerned for myself and concerned for others when it just feels like there's not enough Jesus in our lives. It's not, hey, what does this group believe about this or that? It's is Jesus there. And it's got to be Jesus crucified and resurrected, paying for our sin and conquering death. Because if we don't have Jesus plus cross, and instead just the Jesus that came to us, that Jesus is a good hang, but he's not a good savior. We need the cross. Is there enough Jesus? And I'll, I'll hear friends at different phases of my life, yeah, we're, we're checking out some, some other churches or some other things, and, and my question always is, is Jesus there? Because Jesus is the one that you need. That's the bottom line. And if we're not living out the core strengthening of verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together, riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, if we're not there, then we're going to, for Christians, start living in a Jesus plus mentality or a Jesus and mentality where Jesus is not enough and I'm cherry picking these other things. Let me give a couple of warning signs and then wrap up. And let this be food for thought for, for longer conversation, but how might you and I know if we're drifting spiritually? Let me give you a, th a few things. And this comes both from my own heart and from pastoral experience. If you've been a follower of Jesus, you may be, kind of like Jeff Foxworthy, you know you're a redneck, if. The, you know you may be wondering, wondering, if, for example, your friend group of record begins to shift where the primary group of people from whom you want approval, friendship, and relationship, in a decreasing way, brothers and sisters in Christ, but otherwise. And when that approval group goes in that direction, you may be drifting. You may be drifting if you become increasingly skeptical and mistrustful of Christian voices and lean more and more on non-Christian voices. News, politics, culture, etc. And there's nothing wrong in itself with non-Christian voices. Please hear me on that. But if you're turning those up and turning the Christian voices down, you may be starting to drift a little bit. Subset of this. If you're in a position in your life where you're thinking, man, I, I, I need to talk to a therapist or, or a counselor, which is great, but you're kind of like, at this stage, I don't want to talk to a Christian counselor. Let me, let me talk to, to one that's not. Again, hear me. Is there anything wrong if you're a Christian going to a secular counselor? No. But corollary of that subset, small sample size theater, only my experience, but more than a couple of people. I've known Christians who are struggling, including struggling with their faith, who go to non-Christian counselors in part for help with their faith. In my experience, none of them have remained Christians. A big goose egg. So be eyes wide open. You may be drifting if you stop caring about your sin or you care less. Haven't landed the plane on this, but Got a good suggestion from one of our longtime members. Hey, we haven't preached, haven't heard sermons about the seven deadly sins here at Liberty Collingswood. 
I was like, that's a really fun idea. I mean, not fun fun. <laughs> but yeah, so, so I'm thinking about seven deadly sins for Lent. There, there, there's, there's five Sundays in Lent, not seven. Uh, let, let me know which two of the seven deadlies you don't want me to talk about. <laughs> but if you stop caring, lust, sloth, greed, if you used to be vigilant, vigilant hey, I don't want sexual sin in my life. Hey, uh, I don't want sloth in my life. But now it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll just let myself go. I'll, I'll be less disciplined in ways that I used to be disciplined. Greed. I used to have an impulse towards frugality and generosity. Now it's like Tom Haverford and Parks and Rec, where every day is treat yourself day over and over and over again, where you just keep making exceptions for yourself so you're less generous and less frugal. You may be drifting. You may be drifting if you find yourself caring less for and moving less towards people that are needier than you are and people that disagree with you. You may be drifting. If you move less towards and care less for people that are needier than you are and people that disagree with you. And in my experience, Without Jesus, you have a fairly good chance of doing one of those two things. But in my experience, again, and as I read the scriptures, you need Jesus to do both. So without Jesus, it might be okay for you to say, okay, I'm, I'm fine hanging out with all kinds of people and having relationships across the proverbial aisle. Uh, it's just ideas. Who cares? I'm friends with this person. But caring for needy people, that's messy, that's hard, that requires more sacrifice. I'm just going to stay over here. <laughs> with my barbecues during Eagles games, and it's going to be fine. Or on the other hand, yeah, I'll care for needy people, but people whose ideologies differ from mine, I don't want anything to do, to do with them. I don't care if they're needy or not. But if that's where you are, that's actually really paternalistic. In your categories in your mind, the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. What might Christians contribute in this cultural moment? Exactly this. Sacrificing, caring for people that are needy, and then also caring for moving towards building relationships with people that signify different than I, ideologically. Jesus says, do this in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Or Paul reminds us in Romans, his letter to the Romans in this way. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will one die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, I don't want to build or stay in relationship with this person because he or she, they think really differently than me. Uh, Jesus, like, do you remember that I died for you? You were rebelling against me, which includes thinking differently. And that didn't get in the way of me pursuing you. Now you go and do likewise. 
I'll just touch on, I'm not going to go into detail about this. You may be drifting if, newsflash, you get more revved up by social media than by Jesus. It's true. But let's flip it around positive and then we'll wrap up. So if there's warning, the positive is pay attention to your tuning fork. We had our piano tunes here at Liberty Collingswood and Holy Trinity. This piano here, which we don't use a lot, and also the practice one. Tuning forks. They vibrate in frequency when they hear a sound in the same note, the same mode. Pay attention to whether or not your tuning fork is vibrating to Jesus. And hone in on that sound. Put yourself in the way of virtual circle, vir virtuous circles and patterns where you keep hearing more and more and more the song of Jesus and you love it. I'm not only a sermon giver, I'm a sermon listener. So like on vacation or other times, go to churches, listen to sermons. Sometimes the sermons are not good. That's fine. I don't care. Preaching's hard. But what I do want to hear every sermon, love to tell and hear the story. T'will be our song in glory. Loving to tell and hear the old, old story of Jesus and his love through the cross. If I don't hear that, that hurts my feelings. Because that's the story that we need over and over and over and over and over again. The song of the Savior. And a great time to make strides in this direction. Do you know who thought of New Year's res resolutions before January? The church with Advent. So the beginning of the liturgical year, each year in the tradition of the church, is not January, but it's actually around December. And if you're wayward, if you're drifting, and we're going to roll out our devotionals and some extra spiritual practices and disciplines commensurate with the season, going into the Advent season, take some of these footholds so that you can hear the story and vibrate in tune over and over and over again. And the best thing about a virtuous circle is that it starts to get a little easier and a little more fun the more you do it, when worship and community and mercy get a little bit easier, when living and speaking and serving with Jesus very present here and everywhere gets a little more fun because you're leaning in and leaning on the reality of Jesus who is everything. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.